Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4, where unfortunately we experience a sour ending. A sour ending. Because the truth of the matter is, the book of Jonah would have been so much better had it ended last week with chapter 3. That was fantastic. We had this incredible high note where we could have said they lived happily ever after, but unfortunately there's chapter 4. There's more to the story, and it's not the ending that we would hope for. And so before we go there to chapter 4, for those of you who are maybe jumping on board a little bit late, let's recap briefly chapters 1 through 3. The prophet Jonah was called by God to do a very hard thing, and God will do that, won't he? He will call his people to do very hard things. And the hard thing that Jonah was called to do was to leave his home in Israel and travel to the Assyrian city of Nineveh, a great city, and preach against it to call them to repentance. And the task was especially daunting because the Assyrians, they were notorious for being oppressive and violent. And so in going to Nineveh, Jonah would either fail miserably and be put to death, or even worse, he might succeed. And Israel's bitter enemy would experience God's mercy. Well, for Jonah, this was a lose-lose proposition. He wasn't interested in either one of these. And so instead of going to Nineveh, he went down to Joppa, he boarded a ship, and he headed to Tarshish, which was 2,500 miles in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Jonah was foolishly attempting to run from God. And maybe you've been there. I've been there. But because God so loved Jonah and God so loved the Ninevites, God appointed a storm a storm to um, attack Jonah and his ship, a storm of such ferocity that it threatened to break up the ship upon which Jonah was a passenger and drown all who were aboard. And after a time, the sailors on board, they recognized that this was no natural storm. This was a supernatural storm. And so they, they drew lots to see on whose account their lives were in peril. And the lot predictably fell on Jonah. So reluctantly, the sailors reached the conclusion that the only way out of this situation is to throw Jonah overboard. And wouldn't you know it, when they did, the sea became calm. And what was good news for the sailors was not good for Jonah, because he sunk down, down, down into the depths of the Mediterranean Sea, until it says in 117, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And as horrible as that would have been, it was still better than drowning. The fact of the matter is that that fish appointed by God was Jonah's salvation and represented his second chance. And so while in the belly of the beast, Jonah recognized God's salvation and he composed a psalm of thanksgiving in which, based on his memory of many other psalms put together in his head, he worshiped God and thanked him for this salvation and the second chance. And then after three days and three nights in the fish, it says in Jonah 2.10, the Lord spoke to the fish and had vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Jonah got a second chance. And so he obeyed God's command and went to Nineveh to preach against it. And when he did, a miracle happened. Something that perhaps has never, ever been seen on the earth since or before. 
The Ninevites were cut to the heart by Jonah's message, and they repented of their sin, so much so that it says in chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And you see, what happened that day was arguably the greatest spiritual awakening in the history of the world. An entire city with a population of 600,000 people turned from their sin, which should have been cause for great celebration and joy for Jonah. But, as we will say and see in today's text, Jonah was anything but happy. So would you please stand with me as I read Jonah chapter 4? And we experience this very sour ending. Jonah chapter 4 verse 1 says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And thus ends, awkwardly, (laughs) the book of Jonah. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, you are the author of history. You are the author of this book. And while we might prefer to have the book end with chapter three, chapter four is here for a reason. And God, I believe that you have much to to speak to us today. Would you enable us to listen well? And would you cause us to be those who would obey? God, I pray for your help today. Fill me with your spirit. Give me your words, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. There are three parts to this chapter. First of all, we've got the pouting prophet in verses 1 through 5. We've got the providential parable in verses 6 through 8. And then it ends with a purposeful punch in verses 9 through 11. Alliteration that Pastor Mike would be proud of, right? Uh, The pouting prophet, the providential parable, and the purposeful punch. So let's first of all look at the pouting prophet in verses 1 through 5. Any pouters out there? They're all in FBC Kids right now, right? That's where the powders are. 
However, it's been my experience that we adults can pout too. When we don't get our way, we can get grumpy, moody, sullen, and maybe even throw a tantrum like a two-year-old, which is exactly what Jonah does in chapter 4. It says in verse 1, the great revival that took place in Nineveh, the salvation of 600,000 souls, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. That makes no sense, does it? Jonah just preached what we called last week the worst sermon ever, five words in the Hebrew, and that sermon caused 600,000 people to repent. Their souls were saved for all eternity, and what should have been cause for a great celebration was now cause for anger to Jonah. And so he causes us to say, what is his deal? Why is he the pouting prophet? Well, we find out in verse 2. Verse 2, Jonah's very honest. we got to give him that. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So now it all makes sense, doesn't it? We know exactly why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. It wasn't because of his fear of failure. It was because of his fear of success. In which case, the wicked Assyrians just might repent and God just might be merciful to them, bringing salvation to Israel's enemies. Jonah wanted no such mercy for his enemies. Rather, he wanted judgment and he wanted wrath. And what's ironic and tragic about the situation, think about this with me for a moment, is there anyone in the story who should have been more thankful that God is slow to anger than Jonah? Jonah throughout this book experiences God's mercy and his grace and his patience. He was ready and willing and eager to receive that from God, but very reluctant to extend it to others and especially his enemies. And so Jonah says in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. There's at least two times in this chapter alone that Jonah tells God he would rather die than to see mercy extended to his enemies. And actually, if we count the episode where he tells the sailors on the ship in chapter 1 to throw him overboard, we actually have at least three times in four chapters that Jonah expresses a preference for death for himself than salvation for the Assyrians. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. Jonah is revealing a sick, sick heart that is full of anger and bitterness. Now notice... Jonah's got a lot of head knowledge, doesn't he? I mean, he even has an extensive memory of Scripture, which was demonstrated in chapter 2 when he wrote that psalm in his head, in the belly of the fish, by borrowing from other psalms. He knows God's Word. He's got sound doctrine. He understands God's character, but his heart is sick. And church, that's important for us to take a moment and say, I can know the Scriptures, I can know all kinds of sound doctrine and still have a sick heart. In Jonah's case, a heart that was full of anger and bitterness. Well, when Jonah was done tantruming, expressing his anger and bitterness to the Lord, God finally speaks up and does what God so often does with his children. Maybe he's done this with you. He asks questions. 
It would be an interesting sermon series to just kind of trace the questions that God asks throughout the Scriptures. Questions that are designed to expose our hearts. And let's look at some of those just briefly. God questions throughout the Scriptures. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, He says, where are you? Adam, where are you? Genesis 4, where is your brother Abel? 1 Samuel 13, 11, what have you done? 2 Samuel 12, why did you despise the word of the Lord? Isaiah 6, whom shall I send? Matthew 16, who do you say that I am? Matthew 20, what do you want me to do for you? Luke 22, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And in Acts 9, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, when God asks these questions, is it because he doesn't know the answer? No, God knows the answer. God knows everything. He's omniscient. God asks these questions not to gain information, but because he wants us to come to terms with the condition of our hearts. These questions are penetrating, and these questions are revealing. And in this case, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 4, he asks, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Jonah, does your reaction to the salvation of 600,000 Ninevites make any sense? Is this truly a reason for anger? And Jonah, what does your anger say about you and the condition of your heart? Well, the prophet does not immediately answer and says he does something interesting in verse 5. It says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Apparently, Jonah hasn't given up on the possibility that judgment just might still come to Nineveh. Perhaps, perhaps their repentance was an emotional response, and it would be short-lived. It wasn't authentic. It wasn't genuine. And perhaps they would go right back to their sinful ways, in which case, maybe, just maybe, God would destroy them after all. So Jonah went outside the city to get a good view to get a good view of the potential carnage. (laughs) Like you're watching fireworks on the 4th of July. How sick is that? You know, just just when we think we can't like Jonah any less, he does something to make us dislike him even more. Now, let's review an important concept for last week because it does give us some insight into where Jonah's coming from and where God's coming from. Remember in Jonah's sermon, his five-word sermon in the Hebrew, in chapter 3, verse 4, uh, Jonah began to go out into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That word overthrown is very important. It comes from the Hebrew hapak, which literally means overturned. And what we may have here is a, a play on words, this, this particular Hebrew word, meaning that it, it could go in two different directions in terms of its meaning. You see, it could refer to overturned as in destruction. It could be overturned as in destruction. Hapak was used in that manner in Genesis 19.25 in regard to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 19.25 it says, And he overthrew, that's Hapak, those cities, and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. And that is clearly what Jonah is hoping is going to happen as he watches from outside the city of Nineveh. His actual desire is that Nineveh would experience the same kind of destruction as Sodom and Gomorrah, that they would be overthrown or overturned in that particular way, the way of destruction. However, 
Hapak, that Hebrew word, could also mean overturned as in changed, as it was used in Exodus 7.15. That was where Moses and Aaron appeared before Pharaoh. Moses threw down his staff, and it changed Hapak into a snake. And as we know, this was God's intended meaning for the term in relation to the Ninevites. Not hapak as in, in destruction, but hapak as in being overturned as in changed in transformation. And that is why Jonah is so disappointed. Jonah preached destruction. God was working toward transformation. Jonah is, in fact, the pouting prophet And that moves us next into the next section of the chapter, the providential parable in verses 6 through 8. And we ask the question, what's a parable? A parable is simply an earthly story with a spiritual meaning, often in the terms of an object lesson. Jesus taught in the New Testament, often using parables, especially as recorded in the Gospel of Luke. He would take everyday situations or even objects and he would point to them or show them and use them to make a spiritual point. And here, God is going to do that with Jonah, except here, this is what's so fascinating, just like with the whole story itself, Jonah himself is going to be part of the parable. He's going to be part of the story. He's going to participate. And so look at verse 6. The first part of verse 6, it says, Now the Lord God appointed that word should get our attention, appointed, it keeps popping up. The Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. That word appointed is the providential part of the parable. Who appointed the plant? God did. It's a work of his providence. God is the author of this parable and he is going to bring about certain things in Jonah's life to teach him an important spiritual lesson. And we've seen God do this throughout the book of Jonah, all the way back to chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish. And 4-6, we see now the Lord God appointed a plant. And now next, we're going to see God appointed a worm. And then after that, God appointed a scorching east wind. And if we go back to chapter 1, even though the terminology was a bit different, God also appointed what? The storm, right? The storm. God is continually and patiently at work, in Jonah's life. I find great comfort and encouragement in that because I can be like Jonah. I can be thick-headed. I can be rebellious. And even in spite of that, God is at work patiently, appointing, working. Here in chapter 4, Jonah finds himself in the midst of a providential parable. There's even another fascinating layer to this, really, a comparison between the story of Jonah and and what parable comes to mind in the New Testament that's similar in some ways to Jonah. Can you think of one? The parable of the prodigal son. And this is is really interesting. In the story of Jonah and the story of the prodigal son, we have Jonah playing the role of the prodigal in chapters 1 and 2, right? Where Jonah's on the run. Jonah's going away from God. He wants to do his own thing. He's rebellious and wayward as the prodigal son was. But what happens now in Jonah 3 and 4? What part does he play? He plays the part of the elder son, right? Ungrateful, pouting, grumpy that God would have mercy. That's what we see in Jonah chapters 3 and 4. So Jonah is so messed up, he actually plays both parts in the prodigal son. Well, let's return to his own parable here where God appoints a plant to provide shade and comfort for Jonah 
Now, ironically, the shade and comfort are while Jonah hopes for the destruction of this entire city of Nineveh. And then watch what it says in the second half of verse 6. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Let that sink in for a minute. Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. This is the first time in the entire book of Jonah that he is happy. And what is it that has made him happy? His own physical comfort from the shade of a plant. You know, you can tell just about everything you need to know about a person's heart by what makes them angry and what makes them happy. What makes them angry and what makes them happy. And sadly, we have learned a whole lot about the state of Jonah's heart here in chapter 4. He is angry about God's mercy. And he is happy about his own comfort. The providential parable continues in verse 7. And fortunately, again, God isn't finished with Jonah. God wasn't finished with Nineveh. God isn't finished with Jonah. It says in verse 7, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. All right, do you see what God's doing? God's at work. God's at work in Jonah's life. God's at work in your life. And sometimes the way God's at work in our lives isn't pleasant. Sometimes it hurts. But God's at work for our good. The purpose of the worm would be to attack Jonah's idol, which was what? His own physical comfort. His self-centeredness and to further expose the true condition of his heart. And that comfort would be attacked even further in verse 8, where it says, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Now, we could accuse God of being kind of a, um, I don't know what word to use. We could say that God's cruel. What kind of a God would make people miserable? Well, a loving God who wants the best for his children and knows he's going to have to operate severe mercy to get their attention and to bring them home to the place where he should be. The same God who sent the storm, the same God who sent the worm and the east wind. So God appointed the plant, and Jonah was exceedingly happy, but then God appointed the worm and the wind, and predictably, we read in the second half of verse 8, Jonah said that he might die, and said it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's anger and bitterness have just so blinded him. Do you know people like that? They're so angry. They just can't think straight. They can't see straight. Reality is warped. He's just a ball of rage, and now he's raging against God, revealing again the true condition of his heart. And that was, in fact, the providential parable that God used to expose this in Jonah's life. Next, let's look at the purposeful punch that God uses to conclude this book. Jonah has said his piece. Now God will say his in verse 9. But God said to Jonah, again, the question, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Another one of those questions designed to expose and instruct, and Jonah responds in the second half of verse 9, and Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And again, at this point, we're just pretty sick and tired of Jonah, aren't we? God responds with the punch in verses 10 and 11. The Lord said, Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, 
which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I, not I, pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? That's where the mic drop would happen, the knockout punch is given, the point is made. Jonah cares more about the comfort of a plant than the souls of 600,000 lost people. Certainly character, a heart unbefitting any child of God, but especially a prophet of God, especially the nation of God, as this relates also to Israel. Incidentally, you may be wondering, Chad, I thought you said there were probably 600,000 people in Nineveh. Where's this 120,000 come from? 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left probably refers to children, children who don't know any better yet. And that makes it even worse. Why? Because God plays the, the kid card. He says, Jonah, you don't even care about kids, do you? It's one thing for you to maybe be angry about their parents and their grandparents who have been so vicious and violent and oppressive, but you don't even care about the kids, do you? And then, then God mentions cattle. Why do you think he mentioned cattle? Well, because this is the financial card, I think. Jonah, if you don't have a heart for the loss of human life, would you at least have a heart for the loss of financial resources represented by cows? Can we not even get you interested in the financial ramifications of this if you don't care about people? Which is another powerful punch to Jonah's gut. And then, of course, that's it. That's the conclusion. That's how the book ends. It most certainly is a sour ending. We don't know what happened to Jonah after this. There are people who have surmised that Jonah himself repented after this, but the book doesn't say. Why do you think that is? Why does the book end this way? It it reminds me a little bit of the book of Acts. The book of Acts kind of ends awkwardly as well, kind of like there's more to it. And again, I think the reason that there's more to it in the book of Acts is that there's more to it, and we are the more to it. And I think here it ends this way because it puts the story back on us. For we said in week one, we are Jonah. Now the ball's in our court, and the question is raised, how will we respond to God's loving correction? And so let's explore that question by asking the question, how should we then live? And then let's do it by doing what God did with Jonah and what he did throughout the scriptures. He asked penetrating questions. So I have four penetrating questions for you, for me this morning, to examine the condition of our hearts. And the first penetrating question is this, what makes you angry? What makes you happy? And are these consistent with the heart of God? For some of us, that person that cuts us off in traffic, that lights our fuse and we just get enraged by... Really? Why does that make you so angry? And my wife in the other room right now, is she's going to talk to me later about that. What makes you so angry that you go on social media and you have to post something snarky and something critical and something passionate? And is that what makes God angry? What makes you angry? What makes you happy? And are these things consistent with the heart of God? If we're honest, many of us tend to be happy and angry about the plants in our lives, don't we? Those temporal things that represent our comfort and our convenience. But mess with our plants... 
mess with our comfort and our convenience, oh, and we get angry like Jonah did. Oh, that we would see life through God's eyes, through a different lens. Not the temporal lens, but the lens of eternity and the things that truly, truly matter most and matter to the heart of God. If we are going to name the name of Christ, let us care about the things that Christ cared about and let us leave behind those things that are not of eternal significance. Penetrating question number two, who are those people in your life? Who are those people in your life? Who were those people in Jonah's life? The Assyrians, right? Israel's enemies, which were Jonah's enemies. And Jonah could not bring himself to desire God's best for them. Couldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. How about you? Now, I know that we are far too proper and far too refined to ever admit that we have enemies, right? or that we would actually desire anyone to experience God's judgment and wrath. It would probably be rare for any of us to be transparent enough to admit that. But if we're honest, let's be honest, there are those people in our lives, people that have offended us, who have hurt us, or who just rub us the wrong way, and we struggle to desire God's best for them. If we heard good news for them, if you're scrolling, doing the Facebook thing, and you see that something good happened in their lives, are, are you coming alongside to, to cheer for them, or are you bitter? Ugh. Or the opposite is true. You hear that some calamity came into their lives, and does that grieve your heart? Or deep down, do you say, that's what they deserve? They're only getting what they should be getting. Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And likewise in Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. I I just want to ask you, church, to be courageous enough to be honest and say, who are those people in your lives? People who think differently than you do. People who vote differently than you do. People maybe of a different skin color than you have. Are you willing to admit that you have those people in your lives the way that Jonah did? And will you then proactively, intentionally pray for them? Bless them? Boy, that takes it to a whole nother level, right? It says bless them. Will you proactively and intentionally bless those people the way that Jesus commands us to? and desire God's best for them. I'm not saying this is easy at all, but I am saying this is the way of Jesus. Penetrating question number three, are you in bondage to unforgiveness, bitterness, and anger? Are you in bondage to unforgiveness, bitterness, and anger? Jonah was. I don't think there's any other way to describe it. He was in spiritual bondage. And I truly believe that this is Satan's go-to strategy in defeating believers. I think more, de- more believers are defeated by this than by anything else. For when we are unwilling to forgive those people, we give Satan the authority. We actually give Satan authority in our lives to set up strongholds. Did you know that? Listen to Ephesians 4.26. The Apostle Paul writes, In your anger, do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. The point is this, when you have unforgiveness, bitterness, and anger that is unaddressed in your life, that you just let it fester and you let it grow and grow, um, you give Satan the right, the authority to set up a foothold in your life. A foothold is a base of operations. And footholds that are left unaddressed become strongholds that actually imprison us in bondage. And I believe that was Jonah's situation. He was so filled with anger, so filled with bitterness toward the Assyrians, it ate him alive from the inside out. The devil clearly had a foothold, if not a stronghold, in Jonah's life. And church, who is Ephesians 4 written to, by the way? A church, which is composed of believers... I absolutely believe that you can be a believer, a child of God, and be locked in spiritual bondage because of what we're just describing right here. Good news is that there's a way out. There is freedom. There is freedom. That freedom comes from confession and repentance and possibly someone to come alongside and counsel you through this to help you to process and to deal with deep wounds and hurts in your life. Lastly, Penetrating question number four. Are you a spectator or a participant in the Great Commission? Are you a spectator or a participant in the Great Commission? This, this picture of Jonah here is so damning. He is literally standing on a hill and watching as Nineveh goes to hell, right? And before we get too judgmental toward Jonah... Perhaps we need to examine our own lives because perhaps at the end of the day, we too are standing by and watching as the world goes to hell. God has called us not to be spectators, but participants in the Great Commission. Now, let's be reminded what the Great Commission is, right? Matthew chapter 8, 28, 19 through 20. Jesus said, this is a commandment of Jesus. This is his last words to us, which is his first priority for us. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice, don't just make converts, make disciples. And I believe there's a huge difference between those two things. Disciples are those who are missional, accountable, reproducible, communal, and scriptural. This is what a disciple looks like. This is what we hold ourselves up to and say, does that look like me? Do I look like that? Am I missional? Is my life on mission? Am I accountable to someone who loves me and is willing to speak hard truth into my life? Am I reproducing myself intentionally in others? Am I living in biblical community together, edifying one another? And am I scriptural? Am I living my life? Am I immersing myself in scripture so that it oozes out of my pores? That's what a disciple looks like. And the process of making disciples is known as discipleship. Discipleship is intentionally... I love that word, intentionally equipping believers with the Word of God through accountable relationships empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to replicate faithful followers of Christ. How did Jesus do that? He had a group of 12 that he invested in intentionally equipping them with the Word of God through accountable relationships 
empowered by the Holy Spirit, in order to replicate faithful followers of Christ so that when Jesus ascended to heaven, guess what? Go get them, guys. You have the DNA of discipleship. Go replicate yourselves. Go reproduce yourselves. Church, that is discipleship. That is the commandment of Jesus. And it is not just for a select few in the church. This is the marching orders for every single one of us. And that is why as a church, we're so passionate about these things we call D-groups or discipleship groups, groups that are intentionally designed for this outcome. Now listen carefully. In this story, it's important to note that 150 years after the revival of Nineveh, that spiritual awakening where they repented of their sins and God spared them, 150 years later, which isn't a very long time, God destroyed Nineveh. God destroyed Nineveh. Now think about that. What happened? I propose that what happened in Nineveh is exactly what's happening in America. And it is a failure to disciple. It's a failure to disciple. And church, when we fail to disciple, the outcome is what we are experiencing. We have weak, worldly churches and a wicked nation. And we're quick to point fingers at everybody else and say it's their fault. I think it's important for us to point the fingers back at ourselves and say, are we doing our job? Are we fulfilling the Great Commission the way we're commanded to? What if we did? See, I think part of what happened at Nineveh was they had converts, right? Jonah preached, and there was this, this mass conversion. But where's the, who came alongside and intentionally created disciples in Nineveh? It didn't happen in Nineveh. I don't think it's happening in America, and I believe we are on the path to destruction largely because of our failure to disciple. No wonder making disciples is God's great commission for His church. His last words are to be our first priority, and so I ask you the questions. I ask myself, are you a spectator or are you a participant in this? And so four penetrating questions. What makes you angry? What makes you happy? Are these consistent with the heart of God? Number two, who are those people in your life? Number three, are you in bondage to unforgiveness, bitterness, and anger? And lastly, are you a spectator or are you a participant in the Great Commission? Because church, at the end of the day, we are Jonah. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your patience, for your grace, for your mercy. In Jonah, we see this caricature of ourselves, and it's easy for us to get fired up and to say, what, how ridiculous Jonah's acting. But then we look at ourselves and we say, yep, been there. Maybe we are there. God, would you help us to hear your voice this morning. And again, not, not a condemning voice. I, I so appreciate the fact, God, that you, you led Jonah through a process very intentionally, very deliberately, and you do that in our lives as well. Lead us on that process of sanctification. But God, as you lead us, may we respond with humble, teachable hearts that at the end of the day, we would not be like Jonah. We would be like Jesus. Such a contrast between Jonah and Jesus. We confess 
our likeness to Jonah, and we express our desire to have a likeness like Jesus. So please help us in this. And God, when it comes to discipleship for us as a church, help us to aggressively take those next steps and to not sit passively by. And um, it's, it's already, God, 2022, flying by. So much work to be done. God, empower us to do your work, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.